So now we pick it up immediately after that in Judges chapter 12, starting at verse 8. And really what we have between verse 8 and the end of chapter 12 is just three quick mentions of three brief judges. And some of the judges are like this, right? Some of the judges have extended stories behind them. Gideon, Jephthah, as we'll see later on tonight, Samson. Samson has so much material about him in the book of Judges, we can't cover it all in one night. But there's other judges that are listed for us that are just sort of brief, one-off, short descriptions, as we'll see, verse 8. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Now, this Bethlehem does not seem to be the same Bethlehem that we know being right outside of Jerusalem, the city of David. There were actually a few villages named Bethlehem in ancient Israel. That's why uh, in Isaiah the prophet, excuse me, I think it's Micah instead, it's you Bethlehem Ephrath. It's delineated right there. So this was a different Bethlehem, but this fella Ibzin was a judge that came. He was a man of status and wealth, as indicated by his 30 sons and 30 daughters. That means, obviously, that he had several wives. There's no way one wife could do 30 sons and 30 daughters. Uh, But anyway, he was a prestigious, wealthy man, and uh, he judged Israel seven years. Not much said about him. Verse 11. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ahilon in the country of Zebulun. Again, he's next in this succession of briefly mentioned and reigning judges. He comes from a different tribe than some of the previous judges before him or after him. And it just shows us that God brought up leaders from various tribes within Israel instead of from only one tribe. And then our third of a quick-hitting succession of judges, Abdon. Verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. Again, just a demonstration of the wealth and prestige and influence of this briefly reigning judge, how many uh, sons he had, how many grandchildren, and especially how many donkeys his grandchildren had. uh, On now to chapter 13. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this is very interesting because it reminds us of the rise of the Philistines. The Philistines are going to be a thorn in the side of Israel for many generations, but they first appear to be a problem during this time, the book of the Judges. The Philistines were actually not natives to that area of the world. They came from more the Greek world, from the Aegean Sea, and they sailed there as sort of traders and people who interacted more with the Greek world. As traders and seafarers and people who interacted with the Greek world, the Philistines were far superior to the Israelites in military technology. Um, When the Israelites were dealing with more primitive, softer metals, the Philistines had graduated into harder, more brutal metals. And it was a clear technological and uh, military advantage that the Philistines had over the Israelites. 
Well, it's way back here in the days of the judges that the Philistines begin to bother Israel. Now, this cycle of sin and bondage and repentance and then deliverance and then blessing and then sin again, it continues in the life of Israel up until these times when the next judge of Israel would come forth. And not to spoil the story for anybody, but the next judge of Israel that's going to come forth, as we'll see, is this man, Samson. And Samson was truly a man of his times. He was a study of contrasts. He was a man of great strengths, literally and figuratively, but then he was also a man of tremendous weakness. You could say that in some ways, Samson typified Israel itself during the period of Judges, right? In some ways, very strong and depending on the Lord and winning great victories. At other times, unbelievably weak and fragile. Samson more than anything, stands out in my mind, and we'll touch on this theme frequently, he stands out in my mind as an example of unfulfilled potential. I think everybody in this room would have to agree that Samson did amazing things for God. Astounding. Yet nevertheless, you can't shake the feeling and and the biblical evidence which indicates to us that Samson far... uh, underfilled. He fell far short of fulfilling his true potential. Well, in in any way, we're haunted by the thought throughout the story of Samson of what he might have been for God. And and then it goes on here, verse 1 again, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines. Now, make no mistake about it. Why would God do such a thing? God, why would you deliver your people into the hands of an enemy? Well, I'll tell you why. Because his people were disobedient. His people were rejecting him. His people needed to be woken up. And I believe, isn't it true, that God speaks to us in many different ways, right? But when we close our ears, our ears, and God can speak to us no other way, he has to get out, so to speak. I'm speaking figuratively, of course, or at least I hope I'm speaking figuratively in your life. He has to get out the stick and hit us, right? How else do you speak to a mule that won't listen to you, Right? Please go this way. No, it won't go. Please go this way. No, it won't go. Finally, you got it. You got to encourage it, right? With some, well, God was allowing this affliction into the life of Israel because they would listen no other way. Verse 2. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So the town of Zorah is about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. It was in the original territory allotted to the tribe of Dan before the tribe of Dan migrated northward, which they had already done by this time. Verse 3 tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to this people. He appeared to the man Manoah and his wife. Actually, the angel of the Lord appeared to his wife. Now, as we're going to see from tonight's text very clearly, that this appearance of the angel of the Lord is not the appearance of merely an angelic being. This was an appearance of God himself. And anytime we find God himself appearing in the scriptures, you have an appearance of Jesus Christ. We know it's not God the Father, because the Bible says that God the Father is invisible, and no man has seen him at any time. It's not God the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is spirit and has no corporeal or bodily form. 
Nevertheless, Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity, he has and will appear to humankind in bodily form. So whenever you have the appearance of God in bodily form in the Old Testament, it's an appearance of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see later on, this is clearly just such an appearance. Verse 3 tells us that the angel of the Lord spoke to her and said, You're barren, have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is a tremendous blessing to the wife of Manoah. By the way, we know her by no other name, right? She's just Mrs. Manoah. That's all we know her by. But this was a great comfort to her. Because back then, even more so than now, I mean, of course, uh, childless couples bear a great deal of pain and sometimes stigma in our society. And it's a very painful thing. It was even more true in the ancient world. And so uh, she had borne no children, but here she receives the promise. Verse 3, you shall conceive and bear a son. Verse 4, however, the angel of the Lord gave her very special instructions. Look at these instructions in verse 4. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, we have the description for us of what's known as the vow of a Nazarite. Which here, very clearly in verse 5, it says that the child shall be a Nazarite to God. The vow of a Nazarite was a special vow of consecration that an individual in ancient Israel would make. And this is basically how it worked. At the beginning of a vow of a Nazarite, you would shave your head bald. And then for however long you decided to take the vow, you would take it for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year, 10 years, whatever, that at the end of that period, you would cut your hair off again. You were not to trim your hair at all. You were not to eat anything or touch anything that came from the grapevine. You were supposed to stay away from any dead bodies and then do a few other just practical rituals. But again, these were the customs of the vow of a Nazarite. It was a vow of special consecration to God. And you know, it's not like there was anything magical in not eating grapes or drinking wine. It's not like there was anything magical in not cutting your hair. But these were just emblems of special consecration and dedication to God. Every time the Nazarite looked in the mirror and said, that hair is crazy. What am I going to do with this? It reminded him of his special consecration to God. Every time he had to avoid a dead body, either of a person or of an animal, it reminded of his special dedication to God. So that's what the vow of a Nazarite was all about. There was nothing really unusual about the vow of a Nazarite. By the way, let me throw out a little teaser for this coming Sunday. The Apostle Paul took the vow of a Nazarite. And we're going to see it this very next Sunday in our text in the book of Acts chapter 18. little plug for Sunday there. Okay, anyway. Nothing unusual about somebody. But isn't it fascinating? The Apostle Paul, even as a Christian, would take the vow of a Nazarite. Anyway, that's another subject altogether. In any regard, nothing really unusual about somebody taking the vow of a Nazarite. What was absolutely unusual in the case of Samson was that he was to be regarded as a as a Nazarite, before his birth. Now, that's remarkable, isn't it? And throughout his entire life, he was to live his entire life under a special vow of consecration unto God. That was his call. That was his destiny. Again, verse 5 says, from the womb. So now, Mrs. Manoah 
We want you to observe the vow of a Nazarite until the baby's born. Verse 4, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. And then notice verse 5. There's something very interesting. Your son, he's going to be specially consecrated to God. He's going to be a Nazarite from birth. And then it says something very interesting in verse 5. Did you notice that? He shall begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird how it throws that word in there, begin? Why not just a little more wholehearted, right? He shall deliver Israel from the Philistines. You know why? Because even from the very beginning, God knew that Samson would not fulfill his potential. That a truly consecrated Samson might have succeeded in delivering Israel from the Philistines. But Samson was never so consecrated. And so all he did was begin to live. Oh, he made a great beginning, as we'll see in this week and the next. But all he did was begin this great work. Verse 6. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. By the way, did you notice in verse 6? She didn't say a guy with a halo over his head and, you know, wings at his back, trailing feathers behind him. No, he looked like a man. In other words, the angel of the Lord, Jesus appearing in his pre-incarnate form, looked like a man, just looked like a person, didn't have a strange appearance, although his countenance was remarkable, right? It says very plainly, his countenance was of an angel of God. But verse 6, she says, I didn't ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. So he was just very awesome. Now, verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God, with whom you have come to us again, and teach us, uh, whom you have sent, come to us again, and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said, Look, the man who came to me the other day has now just appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor shall she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So Manoah wants to be filled into the story himself. I mean, he's a husband of this. It's his matter as well. So he says, please tell us what we should do for this child who's going to be born. We know what should we do? What's going to happen with him? Matter of fact, I like what he says in verse 12. He says, what will be the the boy's rule of life and his work? I like this. God honored Manoah's request for confirmation. How should he be raised? And he said, well, I'll just tell you what I told your wife, Mr. Manoah. I'll tell you, you should raise him as a Nazarite, just as I told your wife. But Manoah also asked, what will be his work? What will be his destiny? Did you notice that the angel Lord just ignored that question, right? You know, we long for God to tell us the future, don't we? I, I bet, man, if I could somehow convince you 
that, you know, for $1,000, I could tell you God's future for your life. I'd make a pretty penny here this evening, right? Because everybody wants to know, don't they? Everybody. Man, and I tell you, you can, really, you can really manipulate people if you can make them think that you can tell the future for their life. Everybody wants to know. Manoah wanted to know. Did you know the angel of the Lord didn't even answer him? And I just have to think, why, God, why is it that you rarely tell us the future? You know why? Because he loves us. Now, you think that if he loved you, he'd tell you the future. Now, just the opposite, right? Just the opposite. Sometimes the future's so good, if God told you, you'd be proud. You'd be messed up. Sometimes the future's so filled with challenges that if God told you, you'd quit right now. God knows, doesn't he? He just knows. So I I think tonight we should just rejoice a little bit when the Lord doesn't tell us what's going to happen. When he just says, look, just love me for today. Trust me today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Anyway, verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel, Lord, please let us detain you and we'll prepare a young goat for you. I don't know. Maybe he looked like he was hungry. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, look, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that he is, it is wonderful? So he says, listen, I, I don't need your food. I don't need any of this. I just don't need it. But you want to know my name? Why? It's wonderful. Well, of course, it's really a beautiful connection to Jesus, right? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, so forth and so on. Verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Well, I bet he did, right? Okay, we'll offer you this goat, okay? And I know you'll really like it. It'll be a sacrifice. He's preparing the goat, makes the offering, you know, all the altar and everything. Okay, good. And the angel of the Lord's looking on. Isn't it great? The flame's going, the altar's going. Isn't it great? Don't you like it? And he goes, bye. And he just ascends up in the flame and the smoke of the altar. And you can imagine how terrified Manoah. I mean, they thought that they were just serving a distinguished, honored guest, not the angel of the Lord. Look at this. We'll look at verse the reaction, verse 22. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, this is so great. God bless godly wives. If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering, a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such a things as these at this time. Manoah was freaked out. We've seen God. Maybe he was remembering what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. You can't see my face and live. And Manoah feared that just because they had seen the face of the Lord, that maybe they were about to die. They was panicked. He didn't know what was going to happen. And they, what are we going to do? And his wife says, Manoah, please chill out. If God desired to kill us, Why would he have accepted the burnt offering? 
I believe that's a very perceptive response from Manoah's wife. She understood that God had not done so much for them just to abandon them right now, right? If God just wanted to kill us all along, why would he play so long along with us? No. If he wanted to kill us, he would have done it at the beginning. The fact that he made the promise, the fact that he had the blessing, the, the, the fact that he was here for the offering, the fact that he accepted our offering, the fact that he was kind to us, the fact that he didn't destroy us already, it shows that God's favor is upon us. Now, Kim French, can you just take that thinking and sort of cherish it in your own heart? God's done good things for you, has he not? Oh, listen, I know that there's problems in your life. I do, and I don't mean to discount them. I'm not trying to sell them short for a moment, okay? There's real problems in your life. But look, even here, I I don't know, we could have a contest here who has the worst problems in their life tonight, right now. You know, is it like the old Queen for a Day program or something like that? Oh, yeah, a lot of people have no idea what that's about. (laughs) Anyway, for those who do know, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't, I'm not going to take the time to explain it. Ask someone old in your life, okay? But anyway, we could go through all that. But I tell you, even the person who has it the worst here tonight, you would stand up and say, God has blessed me in the past. God has answered my prayers. God has delivered me. God has worked in my life. Now let me ask you, did God work in your life back then just so he could abandon you right now? No way. What, are you kidding me? Every time God has worked in your past is a promise that he'll work in your future because he loves you. He cares about you. Manoah's wife had this on straight. He would not have accepted the burnt offering. The basis of faith of Manoah's wife was that she knew that the Lord had accepted their offering unto him. And might I say that the same principle works for the Christian believer today. If the Lord wanted to do you evil, he would have never accepted the offering of Jesus Christ that was made on your behalf. But he's accepted that offering, has he not? If anybody wants to debate that with me, I'll debate it with you as long as you want after tonight's service. You just come on right on up and debate it with me. You tell me that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not acceptable to God the Father. Go ahead, make your case. You'll fail because it was accepted by God the Father, was it not? Completely, absolutely. Now, because God has accepted that offering on your behalf, friends, you can know that God means to do you good. It's the same logic. Verse 24. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Manahadan between Zorah and Eshtiel. The Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Please remember those lines as we make our way through the amazing story of this great man, Samson. Why was Samson strong? Oh, listen, I know you think you know, because you've seen the cartoons, you've seen the drawings, you've seen the movies about Samson, right? And if there's one thing you know about Samson, right, that guy is ripped, right? Oh my gosh, I mean, muscles everywhere, square jaw, bulging biceps, the whole package, right? Is that what made Samson strong? No. He was strong because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Matter of fact, I want you to consider, I can't prove it, but I want you to consider the possibility that Samson was a 98-pound weakling, right? That he, he was totally unsuited for his strength. After all, did not the Philistines at a later time 
wonder at how strong he is, right? Now, obviously, he had a supernatural strength and a strength even beyond a very muscular man. But let's just say if he was very muscular, would it not have been strange for the Philistines to look at him and go, well, no wonder he's so strong. Look at the muscles on that guy, right? But no, they looked and they said, how could he be so strong? Well, he may have been a man of very slender build. He might have been the classic 98-pound weakling. But why was he strong? Again, verse 25 tells us, The Lord blessed him, that's verse 24, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. All right, now, verse 1, chapter 14. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah, the daughters of Philistines. Now, therefore, go get her for me as a wife. You know, people want to make this marriage thing so complicated today, right? (laughs) It seems so simple in biblical times, does it not? Okay, anyway. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. Wow. Hello, Samson, right? The introduction we have to Samson as a man is not very encouraging, right? I mean, listen, this is what this man was supposed to be. He was supposed to be specially consecrated to God his entire life. And what was that consecration supposed to be reflected in? It was supposed to be reflected in the fulfillment of the vow of a Nazarite, which meant no cutting of his hair, nothing to do with grape products, anything that came from the vine, nor was he to touch a dead body, either an animal or a man. That was the vow of a Nazarite. Specially consecrated to God. And what's the first scene we have in verse 14? He's thumping his chest, right? Mm, woman, get her for me. She pleases me well, Father. And it's like, Samson, what are you thinking here? You see, this seemed to be a case of love at first sight for Samson, right? He saw this woman, and he instantly wanted to marry her. And he said, verse 3, she pleases me well. Literally, that's, she is right in my eyes. What Samson really cared about is how things looked to himself, not how they looked to the Lord. Now, this sort of thing of love at first sight, let me tell you something. Love at first sight is a powerful but a dangerous thing because I just want you to entertain the possibility of something here, right? That it's entirely possible. And just please, won't you agree with me? Just theoretically, not that it would ever happen to you, right? But just in theory, okay? In theory... Is it not possible to fall deeply, romantically in love with somebody that you should not fall in love with? Isn't that po- And I'm not speaking about you. Just someone you know, right? A friend. Isn't that possible? You see, that is exactly the case with Samson here. Now, I'll tell you, as it was true in Samson's life, love at first sight may feel wonderful, but it doesn't last in that initial form forever. We can be attracted more to the feeling of love itself rather than the person we focus upon, who you really don't know at first sight, right? Because whatever you say about love at first sight, it's not a deep love and appreciation for that person, right? No, it may very well grow into that, but it's not that to begin with. 
So Samson said to his father, verse 3, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. And in demanding a Philistine wife, Samson showed a sinful disregard for his parents' will and for his God's will. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God made it very plain that the Israelites were not to marry the pagan peoples around them. But bound by his romantic feelings, this incredibly strong man found himself in bondage. And just like that today, there are people who are bound. They're in bondage to their romantic feelings, and they still demand from God a mate out of God's will. They say the same thing to God that Samson said to his father and mother. Get her for me, for she pleases me well. I want to make something very clear. The command to the Israelites to not intermarry with the pagan nations around them, the principle of that command applies to Christians today, in that a Christian should not, I'll even go so far as to say must not, marry someone who's not a Christian. They should not join themselves together with an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, be not unequally yoked. That's a famous example of that. I think that applies to far more than marriage, but certainly it applies to marriage. Now, why? I want you to think about this. Think about this logically, just for a moment. Why would God say, here's a person, maybe a wonderful person, maybe a lovely person, yet you should not marry them because they do not have the same spiritual and religious beliefs that you do. Why? Well, let me tell you something. It's not because people who are not yet Christians are not lovable. Sometimes they're more lovable than believers. It's not because they're not good enough. It's not because they're not worthy of our love or how, because they're somehow inherently incapable of being a good marriage partner or a good parent. It's simply because of this. Because to be a Christian means that Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life. And when a Christian and a non-Christian get together... You have two people who disagree on the most important thing in life. I think the most important thing in life is this. You think the most important thing in life is that. Right? I mean, that's what the danger is. Now, if this principle is true, by extension, you should say that a Christian should never date or, let's say, pursue romance with a non-Christian. Why? Because you run a serious risk of falling in love with somebody that you have no business falling in love with. Additionally, I would say this. A Christian is advised carefully to discern the Christian commitment of the one they are interested in. I have seen this in my years. I have seen people out of a desire for marriage pretend conversion. And as soon as their marriage was, you know, as soon as they were married, the pretending was off. But they knew this person will never marry me until I make a a profession of faith. So I'll make the profession of faith. I'll go to church for a while. They literally pretended a conversion simply to get married to a particular person. Well, 
If someone goes against God's plan and marries an unbeliever, or if someone becomes a Christian before their spouse does, there are specific commands in the Bible applying to that situation. The Apostle Paul clearly wrote that that person must do everything possible to stay in the marriage and to be the very best spouse they can be. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But listen, let me say this. God used Samson mightily. But God used Samson despite his sin, not because of it. It is very fair for us to say that God could have used Samson so much greater if Samson would have lived his life in true consecration to the Lord, in true obedience to God. Anyway, verse 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. You see, as the rest of the chapter shows, some good will come of this ungodly marriage. You know what the good is going to come of this ungodly marriage? A bunch of Philistines are going to get killed. And they're going to be kept off balance in their attempts to dominate the Israelites. But let me say this. None of this justifies Samson's actions. Though God can make even the evil of man to serve his purpose, it never justifies the evil that man does. It says right there in verse 4 that God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. And in accomplishing this purpose, please understand... God did not make a reluctant Samson pursue a Philistine woman for marriage. God allowed Samson to do what he wanted to do. Does everybody understand that? It's not like Samson was like this. Oh, Lord, I really only want to marry an Israelite, someone who's just, you know, really loves you the way that I should love you. Please, Lord, let that be the one. But God said, no, I want you to marry a Philistine. I'm going to make you marry a Philistine. It'll ruin your life. No. Samson's heart was already bent towards compromise in this area. And you know what God did? God allowed it. You might say, well, that's rough of God. Well, you know what? Sometimes God does that as a punishment to us. He allows us what our sinful hearts desire. Now, listen, I, I praise God for the many times when God has not allowed me things that my sinful heart desire, right? Listen, sometimes God will allow it. And it's not, his, his, uh, it's not his grace that does it, so to speak. It's his chastisement. Now listen, someone today might justify their desire to marry a non-Christian out of uh, the, the idea or out of the trust that some good will come of it. They'll say, well, listen, th- this partner will eventually come to Jesus. Listen, let me say... It may work out that way. Even as God used Samson's marriage to some purpose, yet it all came at a great personal cost to Samson. And that's how the rest of the story plays out. Verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat though he had nothing in his hand. And you all know how easy a young goat is to tear apart. I, isn't that funny how it uses expression of speech like that? It's like, we're all, oh, yeah, well, of course, a young goat. That's easy, you know? Anyway, um, I just like that. He tore the lion apart as one would tear apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. 
Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hand and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Oi, Samson, what are you doing? No, I'm serious. It's just, it's just, what are you doing, Samson? First of all, first of all, what is he doing walking in the vineyards of Timnah? What is a Nazarite not supposed to do? Not supposed to have anything to do with grapes. Well, I'm not going to eat any. I'll just walk along the vineyards and look at the grapes. What are you doing? Stay away from vineyards. And then what happens? Well, then the lion comes and attacks. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and rips it apart. Man, wouldn't you love to see that? Wouldn't you love to see a man rip apart a lion with his bare hands? I guarantee you that's not on a YouTube video out there, right? That's, that's just awesome. Now, she says, listen, oh, yes, you know, I love this woman. I'll impress her. He was in love with the wrong woman, obviously. And, and the dead carcass of the lion's there. So what does he do when he sees it on his way back? It's filled with honey, which is bizarre. I mean, but there's just a honeycomb there. And what does he do? He takes out the honey, which just, isn't that gross? Excuse me, isn't that not gross? To dig honey out of the carcass of a dead lion? I don't know, but he did it. Now, I want you to see, what was the other thing that a Nazarite was to have nothing to do with? Any kind of carcass, any kind of dead body. Puts his hand right in it. Give me the honey. You see this problem here? He's compromising on his vows of consecration. Now, I want you to notice something. Just before Samson did this, it said that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, right? Samson did this after he was remarkably filled with the Holy Spirit. And this shows us something, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a person's life does not automatically make them godlier. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit may give you the resources in your life to walk in a more godly way, but it doesn't do it to you. A person can be wonderfully gifted by the Holy Spirit and yet very spiritually immature. Let me say that again, because the life of Samson illustrates that in a powerful way. A person can be remarkably gifted by the Holy Spirit. God can use them in mighty ways. And yet they can still be spiritually immature. I'll develop this more next week, but I'm just going to throw it out as a little teaser. Sometimes God uses really weird people. He does. I mean, I mean genuine weirdos. Now, What people want to do is when God uses a genuine weirdo, people somehow think that that's God's approval of the weirdness. That's what you have to say. No, it's not the case. But sometimes, in some places, God uses some weird people. That's Samson. We'll develop that more next week. Verse 10. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, when it says he gave a feast there, literally in the ancient Hebrew, he gave a drinking feast. Samson, okay, 
since I didn't drink any of the wine, right? Which a Nazarite's not supposed to do. But still, what are you doing? By the way, he got 30 guys to come. It's not hard to get people to come to a drinking feast, right? Verse 12. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days, they could not explain the riddle. Samson goes, oh man, I got a riddle. Ooh, I'm going to make some money off of this, right? little friendly wager, but it was for a lot of money. Those 30 changes of garments, those 30 designer suits, right? That's a lot of money. But Samson felt really good that he, they could never figure out the riddle. So he says, I'm willing to bet on this. So the guys that are there, basically his bachelor party. It's a seven-day bachelor party. But there he is. Okay, great. You guys are here for this feast. Let's see if you can solve the riddle. He lays down the bet. Verse 15. And by the way, you get the riddle, right? Out of the eater came something to eat, right? He's remembering the whole lion thing. Verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we'll burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. You've posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you haven't explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I haven't explained it to my father and mother, so why should I explain it to you? Now she wept on him on the seven days while the feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. This is a little marriage made in heaven, isn't it? (laughs) Good heavens. Oh, my gosh. How about this? Verse 16. Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. They've only been married a couple days, right? And it's already come to this. His Philistine wife knew how to manipulate him and how to make herself such a burden to him that he'd do anything to relieve himself of the agony. Now listen, some wives are going to make themselves a burden to their husbands to get what they want. Do do you know why this tactic is often used? Honestly, and I don't mean this in a joking way, it's often used because it works. I mean, it worked with Samson, right? But listen, here's the problem. Just like with Samson, it can poison the relationship and it ends up costing more than it gains. I just give a little, wives, learn a little something from this dynamic here. You, You have power over your husband that you should not use. You should not. Because if you use that power, it can poison the relationship and it can cost far more than it gains. Well, that was the example there with Samson and his wife. But again, verse 17, he told her because she pressed him too much. that This woman easily manipulated the strongest man in the world. And this weakness of Samson... This inability for him to stand against the manipulations of a woman would be the cause of his ultimate downfall. Now, on the one hand, we could be very critical of Samson's Philistine wife, and she deserves some criticism. But listen, uh, 
even though she did not fulfill the fundamental call of a marriage of siding with her husband, right? She was still siding with her own people and siding against her husband. You could grant her some sympathy because she did have to live with the threat. Verse 15, we're going to burn you and your father's house with fire, right? I mean, this is a very strange dynamic in this situation. But at the end of it all, Samson reluctantly gives up the information. They come back and solve the riddle. Samson's out a lot of money from this, right? And what does he say? Verse 18, that classic line, if you have not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Apparently, this was a proverb used at the time. But it shows his anger and bitterness he felt at being manipulated. I don't think he meant it a compliment when he called his wife that. Samson's wife won, so to speak, what she wanted through manipulation, but she lost her husband's heart. Listen, you know, when a, when a man gives in to his wife's manipulations to keep the peace, it almost always builds up anger and resentment in the man, and plus it builds up guilt in the woman for what she did. The way of manipulation, not just for wives, but for anybody, because men can manipulate too. The way of manipulation is often tempting because it can work, but it always brings destruction. That's not how it should work in the kingdom of God. We shouldn't work through other people with manipulation and hidden agendas. Verse 19. It's going to end good. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men and took their apparel and gave the changes of the clothing to those who explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, and he went down and killed 30 Philistines and said, here's your clothes. Can you imagine the blood on those garments when he gave them to his Philistine, you know, in-laws now? Well, he killed 30 of the men, took their apparel, But Samson's wife was taken away. You could say that Samson won the battle but lost the war. His wife left him and went over to his best man. And it's a very, very sad situation. Listen, I would say about Samson what Charles Spurgeon said about Samson. He's playing on this idea of Samson's riddle. He said, Samson himself is a riddle. He's not only a riddle maker... But he was himself an enigma, very hard to explain. Listen, we have a hard time explaining why God would use such a person as Samson, right? Listen, why does God use any of us? It's his goodness, isn't it? There's not a single person in this room who deserves for God to use them. There's not a single person in this room who deserves the blessing and the bounty that God gives to us. Friends, I want us to just spend the rest of the evening putting ourselves in that place of gratefully receiving what God gives. I want you to say, God, I want to receive with gratitude what you have to give me. And you'll see on either side of us, we have tables of communion, right? And when we come back into worship, you're welcome to come up and receive communion and remember this great gift that God has given unto you. The Lord's table is open to you. The body and the blood of Christ is there for you to partake in and to realize that you don't have to earn it. You don't have to be worthy of it. But then you can say, Lord, 
I can be as unworthy as Samson, yet, yet, God, I want your power in me to transform me. This was the missing element in Samson. I hope it's not the missing element in you. Let God's transforming power work deeply into your life. That's what God's calling us to this evening. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that Samson shows us how you use, Lord, uh, really unworthy people. But, Lord, um, that's us here this evening. You have blessed us, though we're unworthy. You have rescued us, though we're unworthy. You've forgiven us, though we're unworthy. And, Lord, we don't want to take your grace and abuse it. We want to receive it tonight and have it transform us so that we live lives of consecration and blessing unto you. Help us to do it now, Lord. We want to receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.